OTB's Mount Rushmore. Some talent in Cork, isn't there? Wow. Uh, a few of the J boys weren't happy, but it was uh, it was my sporting hero. I was contesting, I think, against Jimmy Barry Murphy. So once you're in that company, everything is good. Join the debate across all our social channels at Off the Ball. It's very, very special. Believe me, I think it becomes more special when you're when you're on the coach. I'm listening to this show every morning, and um, you can say it's grand. It's not grand if you're not on it, though, because there's something unfortunately <laughs> inside me that's ultra competitive and. I need to be there. Catch the live decision-making over the next few months on OTB AM, live every weekday at 7.30 AM on OTB Sports Radio. The OTB Podcast Network. OTB AM. With Aviva, Ireland's largest insurer, celebrating 10 years of iconic sporting moments at the Aviva Stadium. And a very good morning to you. You're very welcome along to OTBAM. It is Thursday, the 21st of May, and it is, what, exactly two minutes past eight this morning. You're very welcome along myself and home with you every morning from 7.30 until 10. If you want to get involved in the conversation, you can use WhatsApp, 87 9180 or we're on whatever social media channel you want. Use the hashtag OTBAM. Owen, how are you getting on? All good. How are you? I'm good. Um, interesting stuff from Jordy Murphy there. Paul O'Connell was the closest person that he could think of as... Uh, being Jordan-esque. I, I, I do think that they've picked all the bad bits from Jordan and none of the, the bits where there's just normal stuff happening and he's actually a perfectly fine human being. I think that like they've decided, Jordan, we're going to make him a bit of an ass in this and uh, we're going to pick all those bits and we're going to edit it like that. And I think that was kind of one of the kickbacks that we saw, was it yesterday, the day before, it was like, well, you never see us going back at him, but we go back at him all the time. Like, Dave Stockton saying, you know, he didn't have an aura. We were going there to win the game. And they played like they were going there to win the game. He was just better than them. It wasn't this kind of weird sense of, oh my God, he is a god. I can't touch him. I can't tackle him. There's people going head to head with him in matches. Like, when you hype up something in a 10-part documentary series, you're immediately putting them on a pedestal. But, like, he still puts his socks on the same way everybody else does. Mm. Yeah, I think with John Stockton, like John Stockton got inducted to the Hall of Fame the same night Michael Jordan did. Uh, like, I don't think that was the thing that one of the things that the documentary really uh, gave people an appreciation of was just how good he was. So I don't think Stockton had a, a, a kind of a sense of an aura of anybody he came up against because he was literally one of the best point guards ever played a game. But I, I don't know, though. I, I'm not sure if I agree with that, that they went out of their way to actually give a, a view of Jordan that perhaps wasn't overly true like I agree that there wasn't a lot of blowback from teammates which probably did exist but there are little things that, that are kind of below the surface that say a lot more like the fact that he just chills out with the security guards all the time like he doesn't really have any mates on the team that the clip that's going viral of him uh, or it's totally memed at the moment with him listening to music there's kind of like a, an isolated nature to that as well. He just seemed like a bit of a loner in the, in the Bulls camp, to be honest. Like well, he he's playing cards with people. He's playing like he's playing cards with people. Take their money. I know, but he's playing with them. They 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 continue to play with them. Like, uh, you know, so at one stage, he's listening to music so he can brag about the fact he has the music before everybody else. What a name dropper! Like, uh, uh, I got it before everybody else. Not out yet. Did you do you understand the implication of what I'm saying? Like, the man has a giant ego, but I, I do think that, like, the, the comparisons with Keane and this come into it where, like, they're, they're, he's a fine teammate most of the time, but there are certain moments, particularly in the hour before tip-off, where he's getting at people, Scott, going, you know, I'm, I'm going to be on you. I'm going to beat you up the next time I see you if we don't win this game tonight. Um, 
It's it's interesting that Jordy Murphy didn't say Johnny Sexton there and he picked Paul O'Connell. Why do you think that was? Because in your head, is Johnny Sexton the closest to Jordan? I, I, I don't know why. I just thought in my head that I, I actually hadn't heard Jordy Murphy last night. And I was like, all right, he's obviously going to pick Sexton now. I, I was just a bit surprised that Sexton wasn't the one that came out just because of his level of standards, his uh, clear on-pitch grumpiness sometimes and hugely demanding of his players that has been part of Ireland going to a whole new level. But then again, Paul O'Connell was instrumental in Ireland going to a whole new level for the for the first time, really, in the early part of the century. So perhaps because of the fact that his personality in his post-rugby playing life, and even during his rugby playing life, is seems like a nice guy. He seems affable, perhaps, at times. Maybe we don't always associate Paul O'Connell with the fear of God aspect to his career. Whereas with Johnny Sexton, I think he's just a bit more serious in his day-to-day life. And for that reason... For me, you could compare him a little bit quicker to, to Jordan. I'd be interesting to see what uh, Johnny Sexton has made of the Jordan documentary. He's nodding along. Yeah, exactly. Come on, everybody. Get get, your, get it together. Or is it like, ooh. Um, anyway, look, let's move on because we, we do want to talk a little bit more about um, some rugby today. Uh, Neil Francis has an interesting piece in the Irish Independent where he's talking about David Nusifora and the relationship that Nusifora has with the provinces uh, in the aftermath of the movement that we've seen over the last couple of weeks in particular, Leinster are losing a couple of props. And uh, one in particular who's obviously somebody that they've invested a lot of time and energy and effort in uh, bringing over to this part of the world and seeing him develop. And as soon as he gets to the level where you're like, OK, this, this might be a player who makes an impact over the next season or two, uh, so I don't know, is heading off to Munster. And... Um, the headline is sooner or later a call from Yusufor will cause, conf- cause conflict. I suspect there's already been conflict in the, in the provinces with the national team and there's always going to be this tension, right? You would have thought so. Like the point that Neil Francis is making this morning is that Leinster might actually be short, which is not something we've associated with the province in recent times whatsoever. It's with um, the, the, the tight heads uh, that are at their disposal with Salanoa now going to Munster, it takes away one of the options that they thought they would have had six, but actually that may dwindle. And he makes the point that Lee said you could have an agent, Keen Healy and Andrew Porter may actually shift across because he might get more test appearances at that position with Tyke Furlong still around for a few years. So that leaves him a little bit empty at the other side of the scrum. He's making a point that he goes off with the Leinster playbook in his back pocket. And you would imagine that people involved in Leinster aren't too happy with this at all, given the investment that they've put into a lot of young players. And you would probably make the point out of Magic I don't want to put words into your mouth, that there is almost a, a punishment for the success of the academy and the success of the conveyable that they've got going on in the province. Well, if this continues to happen, why do you invest time and energy and effort into it? What's the point of that? Is there is there not a moral hazard at some point where... You're like, okay, I'm going to develop all these players and it's my job to do it. And we might get a third of them through, even though we want all of them to come through. You don't want to be putting across this idea that Leinster will bring through, whatever, 20 players. And out of those 20 players, the, the best seven or eight will become starters down through the years in a, in a variety of positions. And then the remaining 13 or so will then get scattered across the rest of the provinces. It, it, it doesn't look good in fairness. It's, it, it isn't something that represents Irish rugby well as a whole. It's just the way that the cards are stacked at the moment. There is just an unbelievable 
depth of options throughout the schools game in Leinster, throughout the resources that are available at Leinster, that this is the way it is always going to be. And like I think Francis makes this point as well, that Nusa Four got a brand new contract. He looked like he was doing really, really well when Joe Schmidt was doing really, really well. And perhaps if things start to take a little bit of a downturn for a while, perhaps Ireland come back to... Uh, a base level, as some people would put it, over the next few years, perhaps then we'll start to look into a little bit more how well or, or how poorly Nusifora is performing. And like that's going to be an interesting question, especially because he didn't really take much of the blame after the disaster of the Rugby World Cup last year. So He certainly didn't accept any of the blame. And, and he did say that um, when he was asked, you know, who, who is reviewing your performance? He was like, oh, that's a good question. And I'm paraphrasing there just for the sake of accuracy. So it is interesting that his his success or failure is not something that we know how it's judged. We don't know how the IRFU regards his performance. Um, you know, he set the he set the the team needs to reach a semi final for the World Cup to be successful. That was you know spoken about, and he essentially set that mark. And I think everybody accepts that that is the mark, but. If you're in charge of the team reaching the semi-final, essentially, you you pick the coach. You you know understand which players get contracts, which provinces they play for. Um, maybe you didn't pick the coach per se, but certainly the coach seemed to be reporting to him, and he was on the pitch with the coach in coaching gear. Like what 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 is what is the specifics of the role? I suspect is the question that we don't really know the answer to, and how is that judged? A success or failure. True. Like if you're in Nusifor's position and your role is for the general benefit of Irish rugby and that is marked by the test team doing well, you are going to be making similar decisions. If you see that there is a talented prop who is sixth choice for their province and you see that another province in Ireland is perhaps struggling at that position or that young promising player might actually get more of an opportunity there, you might actually shuffle the deck to do it. You can see why Nusifor makes these decisions. Also, as well, let's face it, despite these decisions being made, there is still a distance between Leinster and the other three provinces. Who are we to say that we're not at peak player movement? Like, who's to say that like, this is not, that the floodgates aren't opening? Like, maybe the floodgates are currently open. Like, I know you, you want to kind of put forward the idea that everybody will be up for grabs that comes through the Leinster school system and it'll start, people will start being divvied up. The best player will always go on to play for Leinster if they're produced through the Leinster Academy. Oh. Like there is still a situation here where the, if a player moves between the provinces, they are not first choice for Leinster. But hang and on. because of that, Leinster will always have their number one position well, as the province in Ireland. You don't know that the 23-year-old prop isn't going to be the best prop of 26. Like you, you probably want to keep that guy around to see what the level of evolution and development for that individual is, particularly a prop, right? And about half, right? Clearly, at prop and at half, you want to give players time to mature. Everybody else, you kind of have a fair idea. I see the markers here. I see the career progression. I have a fair idea where they're going to go. But in, at these two positions, I, I actually, it, it was really fascinating to hear Brian O'Driscoll um, recently talking about being uh, I wasn't a member of the Leinster Academy, I was a member of the National Academy. James Collin, likewise, on um, Sunday, speaking with Neil Tracy a couple of Sundays back, spoke about being a member of the National Academy at underage level. And I wonder if actually the future here is not to have a Leinster, Munster, Ulster and Connacht Academy, but to continue to have the same amount of investment in those players. And actually they all have national contracts at that point. I don't know, I wonder if there's some way of doing that so that 
you actually remove the sense that you're building players just for this club. Because ultimately, if you're not, then everybody should know that from the start. And at that point, the freedom of movement becomes something that graduating class graduates at 19, 20, 21, or whatever it is. And you, you move up a year or you don't, you move up another year or you don't. Um, or they figure that like there's a, there's a dearth somewhere and you get moved around. And then it becomes a very natural thing to move. Now it's like you bring people up in a culture and you flip them to a different culture and expect them to A, thrive, and generally maybe they do. Uh, but like, what's, why would I continue to build resources for my rivals? That's the, that's the issue. Well, you're building resources for yourself as well. Let's not forget. You, you are going to reap the benefits of your own academy. Like you will still get the cream of the crop as you see it at the age of 21 to 23. I accept your point that you can't tell how good a player is going to be in many positions, even at the age of 23. But you can make a good guess. You can employ the best coaches in the world to help you make that guess. You've got Stuart Lancaster, you've got Leo Cullen to go to the training park and make that guess for you to actually look at which, are, which of these kids would you like to have? Which of these kids would you like to have if you could have 20 players in a position? But we're in Ireland, this is the situation. It's not ideal, of course it's not, but the cards are stacked in your favour. You can pick your hand. You can pick pocket aces, Leinster. You can give the pocket tens to Munster. Maybe a couple of more tens will throw up when uh, the, the cards in the middle of the table are turned up, but you don't know what's going to happen down the down the line. You can give yourself the best opportunity to have the best team. The, like you still have the odds stacked in your favour as Leinster. I agree. It's not an ideal situation. And the National Academy, I think that's actually a really good idea because that way, you know, you're getting people ready to hopefully put on the green jersey one day. That's a definite Whereas in the Leinster Academy, you're not necessarily creating players to put on the blue jersey because that might never happen. So I think that that's a good idea. But I still think in the current situation, it does seem a bit rich that uh, that people are complaining about what other players might be doing when they, when they go to other provinces. It's not, it's not ideal that those other provinces aren't as amazingly stacked as Leinster, but that isn't going to change for a whole range of reasons for the time being. Well, uh, look, I guess the question is, are the provinces doing enough on their own? And is the IRFU doing enough to help the provinces to, to reach a level where they're able to become self-sustaining. Sure, there's always going to be a bottleneck and there's going to be too many players in, in one position. And at that point, natural selection should out. But it seems like we haven't reached the natural selection just yet here where this player wanted to leave because he wasn't getting game time. It seemed like Jordy Murphy wanted to leave because he wasn't getting game time and he wanted to play in the World Cup. So away you go. Likewise with Jack McGrath. Totally natural where they've reached that stage of their career. But when it's players who you haven't seen the potential for just yet, you kind of throw your hat at it and go, like, you know, Man United are not developing players from Manchester City. They just aren't. And if, if the competition between the provinces is not real, what's the point of watching the provinces? For Joey Carberry and Johnny Sexton going toe-to-toe, -to -toe, Sexton pulling Carberry by the shirt. That seemed like a pretty real rivalry. Like... In that one instance, these two players were battling for the same position after a player has moved. Did he want to move? You know, like the the Johnny Sexton, Ronan O'Gara rivalry, they became friends later on. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know the point of that. I guess I'm saying Man United and Man City are not swapping academy players who are going to go on and represent each other because there's a real proper rivalry between these two. It turns out the provinces are like brothers in arms who are all trying to you know, essentially win for Ireland together.
it for me it just diminishes those those matches and the intensity of those matches. And we're about to enter a period where we're going to have to watch a lot of those games going, that guy used to play for that team and that guy used mm. to play for that team. And actually, they're all really from the same area. But sense of identity and place is hugely important to these other two teams, even though half that team is actually from Dublin. Well, the Manchester City, Manchester United comparison, they're not being brought up to represent Ireland in the final place or to represent a single country. They don't have a union over their head that has their own interests. And we can't, you, you can't just ignore... Like, Nusifora isn't going in here saying, what, what is the, the worst job I can possibly do? You can see what he is trying to achieve with all of this. We gave him credit, and he deserves a lot of credit for, I think, the, with the way Joe Schmidt was stacked, at least going into that Grand Slam year of 2018. Like, a, a vast array of options as a result of how pawns have been moved around the provinces. Your point, of course, there was, there was truth in the fact that perhaps, it, well, it's not a perhaps, it's a definite that the, the province... The provincial game won't thrive as a result of this process. But I still think you can have an excellent rivalry that exists between these provinces. You can't have a brilliant situation in every aspect of the game. You can try and strive for an outstanding international team, which is clearly the number one priority here. And in the meantime, try not to mess up the rivalry between the provinces too much. In my opinion, they haven't done that whatsoever. I think there's been some great battles between Leinster and Munster in particular over recent years. I don't. I think as long as fans are there to support their teams and there will always be Munster fans and there will always be Leinster fans and there will always be a rivalry. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I think that this, this kind of stuff just chips away at it. Um, I, I, and I don't have the solution straight off the bat, but I think it's definitely worth <coughs> considering. The other, the, one, the other thing is like, we, you know, the point of Neil Francis's piece is that uh, anybody with a foreign accent comes along and tells us what to do and we're all lemmings and we go for it. That, like essentially, he has an anecdote about uh, Gary Ella being the Leinster coach and talking about changing the, the Leinster school's rugby coach, Leinster school's rugby coach. The one thing you would ask is whether or not Australian rugby is exactly where we should be looking for um, for guidance or even uh, New Zealand rugby at the moment like we need our own rugby culture and we need to know exactly what that rugby culture is and to define that because we can't keep looking outside all the time look outside for ideas look outside for uh, new coaching trends and analysis but like what do we stand for ourselves at some point you need to stand up and have your own identity if you look at the success of the Dublin footballers if you look at the success of Kilkenny they've, they've taken stuff from everywhere else but they've built it on their own principles this is who we are. We're Cork, right? Like when Cork were good, they had a, a, an innate Corkness. Over the last while, they've kind of gone away from that. What does Irish rugby stand for? What is our identity? What is Leinster's identity? Very clear, I would say. And absolutely, they needed some uh, foreign coaching to help them get off that. But it wasn't that like they took something just from Randwick and said, we're going to go with this. It was the best of what Leinster had to offer with a little bit mixed in. I just... and. We're going to do a full hour on Australian rugby um, between 9 and 10 this morning, so maybe we shouldn't labour this anymore. But if you've got one last point there on you wanted to get in on, go for it. No, you, you made the point there as well. Like It's just important to point out how you can use foreign coaching in such an unbelievably beneficial way. That, 100%. And I know that's not, know that, that's not the point you're making at all. Exactly. It's just like, it's like you look at Stuart Lancaster, you look at Pat Lamb. Like, if there is a, a better stencil... Pat Lamb's a great books. example. Pat Lamb came in and said, what makes Connacht Connacht? I'm going to build on that and I'm going to bring you my philosophy and then we're going to share that collectively and we're going to, everybody's going to have to buy into it. And you just, you hope that what's happening here is that the erosion of the values which make Munster Munster and Leinster Leinster aren't happening to the point where it doesn't actually matter where you're from. Because that's the one yeah. thing that Irish rugby has that other 
other rugby countries don't have that make the provinces good. And the provinces have been really good. And they, I, I understand that the, the national team is where you make all your money, right? And the provinces probably couldn't survive if they didn't have the injection of cash. But the thing that makes the national team good is that the provinces are good and that they're strong and they have a sense of identity and that rivalry is completely real between those two provinces. When you erode that, you risk... It's a, it is a pyramid and you're taking away the, the foundations of that pyramid and it could collapse. I'm not saying it's going to. I'm sure that they'll be able to fix it and if this policy doesn't work in five years' time, it won't be too late to go back. But in the meantime, you're actually... I can't imagine what it must be like to work in the Leinster Academy, put hours and hours and hours into an individual who then gets good and gets whipped away from you. And you're like, what? Like, what's the point of that? Well, it must be pretty good to work there when you work, put hours and hours and hours into an, an individual and the best ones actually go on to lift the Champions Cup for Leinster. Because that happens quite a bit. Right. Let's move on. 21 minutes past eight here this morning. Uh, coming up, uh, we, I'll give you the sports button first. The IOC president, Thomas Back, says he fully understands why the Tokyo Games would have to be scrapped if the event can't be held next year due to the crisis. Games are obviously pushed back a year in March. Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has said that the event cannot said the event cannot take place in 2021 unless the virus is contained. In an interview with the BBC, Bach said he understood the view of the Japanese government, but he also said the IOC were committed to holding the games next year. They have to be prepared for various scenarios, including athletes going into quarantine. In football, the League of Ireland clubs could find out about a potential return date later on when the FAI steering group meets again. Thoman Park could be used as a venue for games when the season resumes. The Aviva, Tala Stadium and Athlone are also in line to stage games, while FAI headquarters in Abbottstown has been earmarked for first division matches. FAI medical director Dr Alan Byrne says games can only take place when there is an acceptable level of risk. Premier League matches could be televised free to air following productive discussions between the government and football's authorities. Sky and BT obviously hold the rights to screen the remaining top flight fixtures this season. But with matches set to resume behind closed doors, Culture Secretary Oliver Dowden believes ending the 3pm Saturday blackout gives them room to negotiate. Meanwhile, Liverpool manager Jurgen Klopp is optimistic the Premier League will be able to resume next month after a squad returned to training in small groups yesterday for the first time since football was postponed in March. Amateur boxing in Ireland is facing a, ma a massive crisis after two clubs were made homeless in the last 48 hours. St. Teresa's and Bray say the premises that they've been using was sold without them being informed and Tullo and Carlo have also been left seeking a new home after a rent freeze was denied. Here's what's coming up for you. We're going to speak with uh, Mary O'Connor from the Federation of Irish Sport around about 8.35 this morning. Um, they've made a call for a resilience fund to help clubs like the uh, Boxing Club in Tullow and Carlow and like St. Teresa's and Bray. Uh, these are obviously very important aspects of social architecture um, that kind of bond society together and so they're asking for a bit of help for that and uh, Michael Check and Andrew Mertens are the guests this week on Keith Wood's State of the Union which is coming your way after 9 o'clock. So at 8.23, we'll bring you the papers. OTB AM. Uh, Offtheball.com, a national scandal. The Bradford Fire, 35 years on. Daniel Taylor was on last night talking about the uh, Bradford Fire, which is uh, just one of those horrific tragedies in um, English football with a lot of very unanswered questions. A lot of un unanswered questions still uh, very relevant 35 years on for the families of that. And uh, the worst feeling I've ever had Jordy Murphy talking about his World Cup dropping. Danny Rose on mental health and how managers can make a difference. Uh, amateur boxing facing crisis is two clubs in 24 hours homeless and tributes paid as ex-WWE star Shad Gaspard dies trying to say son. A terrible story from um, 
the last week where his son was uh, essentially rescued by Coast Guards just at the very last second. Um, a riptide uh, came along and carried Shad Gaspard away and they discovered his body yesterday. So that's what's on offtheball.com for you this morning if you want to get your sports fix. The Irish Independent this morning leads with a picture there of Jurgen Klopp back at the Liverpool training ground. It's like the first day of school, he says. Reddit's boss says squad is in good spirits as Watford star shocked by positive tests. That is uh, Adrian Mariapia, who was fairly surprised, I think, to say the least, when he got his positive test for coronavirus. Also, sports data company to examine GAA contact time. So this is the Newry-based company behind the player proximity white paper that provides detail of contact between Premier League players ahead of a return to training this week hopes to soon be in a position to provide similar information to GEA clients. So this is Statsports, and they've been showing data for Premier League clubs where players are in the personal space of other players for a percentage of time that is actually less than people expected. And crucially, it is less than health experts advise is required for COVID-19 to be passed from person to person. They don't claim for it to be an exact science. They're just saying it's a guideline, but it's very interesting. And of course, there is the fact here that the GEA and the way Gaelic Games is played, there is far more man marking, there is far more possibility for people to be within the personal space of another player for far longer than in football. So it's interesting and it's a newry based company involved in all of this from the Premier League's uh, point of view. The Irish Times, um, their lead is Autumn Six Nations could cap busy seven test Irish schedule. So this is the return to play August 22nd, Leinster Munster at the Aviva. Could herald a hectic spell of games and they've got a list here. This is Gavin Comiskey's story. Um, Leinster Munster on August 21st, Ulster Connacht on the 23rd, and then Interpros the next week, Leinster Ulster. And then uh, they're looking at a Pro 14 final on the 17th of September, followed by Champions Cup semi-finals. And then the 3rd of October, Ireland, Italy, and uh, Pro 14 starts again and then France-Ireland the following week Champions Cup final the week after that and then uh, hopefully a Six Nations in October and November and December which will be pretty exciting I think we would all be very excited about the fact that um, you'd have a lot of rugby between uh, the end of August and Christmas if it can happen Dave Hannigan's got an interesting um, column today How a Hoodlum and Murderer Gained Control of Boxing Just better read you the first paragraph of this the czar of boxing did not have an office. Frankie Carbo preferred to conduct business at his favourite table in the Garden Cafeteria just across 8th Avenue from Madison Square Garden. Promoters, managers, trainers and fighters made daily pilgrimage there to genuflect before this grey-haired, mild-mannered gentleman as he sipped his coffee. And then he goes on to tell you about uh, Carbo potentially being the trigger man who offered Bugsy Siegel a seat as... Sorry. Who offered Bugsy Siegel as he sat on a couch in a... Sorry. The word is oft, not offered. So you know Bugsy Siegel from the, um, the movie and uh, Carbo is the guy who was suspected to be his murderer and obviously uh, goes on to become a very important person, a senior figure in uh, global boxing. And then I'll see Munster then unlikely to re recruit a replacement for Tyler Blaindell is uh, the other story there. The terrible news yesterday that Tyler Blaindell had to retire. The London Times this morning leads with the story about Watford. Worried stars stay away, they say, as Watford train. So several members of Watford's squad have refused to attend the club's first training session because of the safety fears ahead of the Premier League's planned restart next season. They lead with a photograph 
of Mo Salah back in training for Liverpool. They've got a constant stream of information on whether or not saliva will be used on balls or not in cricket on the back of uh, the Times. And this morning's headline is saliva ban will hurt spinners. Meanwhile, air Saturday games for free is a quote, which is the headline of Matt Lawton's piece. The government increasing pressure in the Premier League to make some matches free to air, possibly on Saturday afternoons. So it could be potentially on Sky Sports or BT's YouTube channel, for example. The Irish Examiner, uh, Klopp, players who don't feel safe, free not to train. And then picture Tyler Blendahl, a tough decision, but the right decision, Blendahl bows out. This is a significant neck injury that he's had over the last while. And they also have comments from Ron Nogar saying he's unbelievably well respected in New Zealand and at 29 he is a coach in waiting. So uh, he may immediately join the Munster coaching tickets. Um, the Irish Times are reporting that they won't be replacing him just yet. That they actually they have a couple of young kids coming up who are very good out halves at the age of 20 who we might get to see some game time for in the next while. The Irish Mirror this morning. How did this happen? is the headline on the Mariapa story. He says, I don't party, I rarely go out, just go for a walk with the kids. Ever since I got the result, I've been scratching my head. Ulster Ace Murphy, meanwhile, is backing a restart at the Aviva. This is Jordy Murphy, who of course was on the show last night, who's backing plans to return to competitive action in behind closed doors games at the Aviva Stadium. And new kid on the cop is Jurgen Klopp and the headline on that story, because he said yesterday felt like his first day back at school. The uh, Irish Sun, Back page there is uh, Barry is secret Swindon backer. He lent agent pal who bought club shares 800 grand. Uh, and then the other one here is uh, the subheadline Waterford owner power an 800 grand loan claim. So um, this is a Gareth Barry somehow involved in helping to bail out Swindon, which is apparently against FA rules. So um, I'm sure you'll hear more about that story. Our balls are sticky is the headline. The Premier League's big return to training has been hampered by sticky balls. It's football zone, get your mind out of the gutter. Some players have angrily slammed the Phase 1 COVID-19 training programmes as pointless and ludicrous. All 20 top flight, top flight clubs have now resumed work, but uh, the disinfectant that is being sprayed on the balls has reacted to the hot weather, causing the surface to become tacky and affecting movement. Don't spray your balls with disinfectant. Good for goalkeepers, sticky balls. Yeah. Back page of the Irish Daily Star is Why Me? Watford ace Mariapa battled by coronavirus positive test. It's a touch of class for Klopp, who's back in school, as I've mentioned. Player grief, a real issue, meanwhile. Uh, this is Paul Keane writing that leading performance psychologist Tony O'Gregan says the current COVID-19 shutdown has plunged some players into grief. He talks about the association, the deep association between footballers and hurlers and their sport, they see themselves as hurlers, they see themselves as, as footballers, and to have that taken away for a prolonged period of time obviously causes a, a whole range of mental health issues. And also Charlton to swoop for Troy. Charlton will renew their interest in teenage Ireland striker Troy Parrott next season. Um, the Telegraph next. Back page of the Telegraph there is Mary Appleman shock at positive test. We've just done that story. Plead to save British Grand Prix by easing quarantine, which is... It seems to me the exact same story as yesterday, but no, it says Thursday, the 21st of May on that one. Uh, ITV presents 1.5 million bill for lost national. Hotel isolation plan requires law change. So um, all those plans are still being worked on. And uh, Serge Aurier got his hair cut. Not supposed to get your hair cut. Faces a uh, significant fine for that. The Guardian this morning leads with a photograph of Mo Salah back in training. Look who's back. Salah and Liverpool squad. 
return to training before possible restart. Staying at home, several Watford players missed training amid COVID-19 fears. That is the headline on the latest news from Watford and the Premier League. And Formula One plans eight European races to start season. And the uh, what's next for me is the Herald. The Herald this morning is um, essentially that story that uh, Colin Keyes had about Statsports um, and how the GA are going to be able to use some of the data from some of the teams who use uh, Statsports um, to get at least a sense of how often players are in contact with each other during training and matches. And uh, during first day back at school, Liverpool boss puts on his uniform again for training. The Irish news finally for me, Belfast and Glasgow Celtic link offers new pathway to paradise. That's a story on uh, both of the Celtic teams there. And Coney says counties must wait their turn after resumption. That's Kyle Coney saying club football must come first in the return to play in Gaelic games. The last one is the mail and it's Kante opt out. So this is uh, Chelsea star won't train due to virus fears. Chelsea star N'Golo Kante opted out of phase one training yesterday due to his concerns. There's a picture of Mo Salah back at training and Blaine Dahl poised for a move into coaching. Um, you'd hope that he'd be able to stick around. Uh, Monster head coach Johan van Graham has confirmed he is looking to add another coach to his backroom team and Blaine Dahl could be a prime candidate to fill that vacant role. Um, obviously, you never really want to see anybody end their career like this, but uh, given the severity of the injuries, um, it seems like it was the, the right time for him to call time on that. So let's move on because it's uh, 34 minutes past eight this morning and uh, Aviva, Ireland's largest insurer, are marking the 10-year anniversary of the official opening of the Aviva Stadium and its proud long-term sponsorship of the iconic venue. To celebrate this milestone, Aviva are paying tribute to some of the most iconic sporting memories of the past decade. You can join in yourself. You can follow Aviva Ireland on Instagram and Twitter and share your favourite Aviva Stadium memories using the hashtag safe to dream Now, the people of Sligo mobilised yesterday. I think League of Ireland fans mobilised yesterday and we had a bit of a surprise, but not really that much of a shock. A bit of a surprise. Karen Kelly, who uh, saved four penalties in a row, we spoke to him about all four of them on the show um, about 24 hours ago, and Shane Long's goal against Germany is out. Kevin Caban reckoned that Shane Long's goal against Germany was one of the biggest goals in the history of Irish football, and it has been beaten by um, four successive penalties being saved by the Sligo Rovers goalkeeper a decade ago, which is, in fairness, you know, a fairly amazing thing. Um, but certainly the good people of Sligo and I think the League of Ireland fans were out in force. The second semi-final is live right now. This is pinned on our Twitter account. It's uh, Jonathan Walters against Bosnia against Shawnee Maguire against Dundalk. So uh, could we have an all-League of Ireland final? We could. If the League of Ireland fans get out now and start voting for Shawnee Maguire against Dundalk, it'll be Shawnee Maguire versus Kieran Kelly. But I would suspect that nothing's going to stop Kieran Kelly. The Sligo Rovers juggernaut is on the road and it's in convoy and they're not stopping until they get to the Aviva. No, there's a, once a momentum starts in social media, it is hard to derail it. And like you said, a momentum doesn't matter, Jar. Look at these polls and read us and weep. It is a real thing. The scientists who sat down and said, this is the formula for momentum We'll be looking at Kieran Kelly polls and saying, proof. Right, we're going to talk the future of Irish sport with Mary O'Connor of the Federation of Irish Sport next on this morning's OTBM. First, though, let's hear from Lawrence Donegan. Here he is talking with Joe last night about uh, Roy McElroy and Donald Trump. Have a listen. 
<laughs> that was quite funny. Uh, yeah, it was quite surreal. We were watching the uh, Skins game on Sunday and Mike Tirico, the host for NBC, asked Trump <laughs> a, a question that he didn't actually mention the podcast, but he, a question derived from Rory's appearance on the on the podcast. What was quite interesting to me was that Trump uh, skirted the opportunity to have a go at Rory. And that, because I, there's a pal of mine who works on a newspaper in New York, and he's known Trump for years, and we were chatting. And I said to him, do you think Trump will tweet out at Rory? And he said, there's no chance he will do that because he's such a jock sniffer, which means a kind of sports fan. That's an American term for sports fan. He he will not want to fall out with Rory. And lo and behold, he very skillfully dodged the, the chance to, to have a go back at Rory in the midst of making what was essentially a party political broadcast in the middle of the whole thing. So um, there you go. That was a little bit of insight into the mind of Donald Trump. Yeah, you can get that uh, full interview available for download wherever you get your podcasts. The best place is the Go Loud app or indeed offtheball.com forward slash podcast. Now, the Federation of Irish Sport has called for a resilience fund to help Irish sport get through this very difficult period. The Federation of Irish Sport are the umbrella group for national governing bodies and um, they are the voice of Irish sport. And I'm delighted to say Mary O'Connor, the CEO of the Federation of Irish Sport, is with us this morning. Mary, good morning to you. How are you doing? Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Um, let, let's start with, the. there's a couple of things that we want to talk about. One is this call for our resilience fund. What would the fund do and how would it work? And the resilience fund is necessary. Um, national governing bodies and local clubs all over the country are facing a huge challenge. Um, since there's an unprecedented hold in sporting activity, they have no way of generating income which they normally would, which would be subscriptions, and obviously activity, gate receipts, event activity, and the hosting of summer camps and coaching courses. So we need a resilience fund to help them remain viable. How would it be administered? Who would pay for it? How much do you need? Um, that's a really good question regarding the figure. Um, it, the longer this goes on, it's so uncertain. It's very difficult to actually put a figure on it. Um, obviously, we're, we're looking for a government solution on this. Um, and I've been proactively working with the Department of Transport, Tourism and Sport and Sport Ireland to try and see where can uh, finance be found and also how it can be um, administered to the national governing bodies of sport, but also to the, to the local clubs as well. Because, look, we, we saw just yesterday a couple of boxing clubs who are saying they're now essentially homeless, one because the building was sold out from underneath them and uh, the other one because they're, they're not getting a rent freeze. That's just an example of what we're going to see from lots of clubs right around the country. Any, any club that doesn't actually own its own pitch that's renting and, you know, they're, they're not going to have, as you said, the ability to raise funds. So um, uh, how, how are similar schemes like this in existence around the world? Is there, are there practical ways that we can actually address this and learn from other jurisdictions? Yeah, look, obviously, you know, what's happened to, to Bray and Tullow is, is really unfortunate. But unfortunately, it's something that possibly we're going to see more of. If clubs can't generate income, um, obviously they're going to, uh, to struggle to survive as well as Bray and Tullow did. Uh, Sport New Zealand ha have um, activated a resilience fund, as have Sport England, Sport Wales and Sport Northern Ireland as well. So there is international examples of how this is being uh, ruled out. Uh, Sport New Zealand and um, have activated 147 million uh, bailout for resilience funding. 
I think that resilience fund is really important because it gives people some type of security. What we want to try and do is make sure the sport remains viable, that it can adapt and become stronger because we're going to be living with COVID-19 for a long time. I think in instances like this, it's always no harm to explain why sport matters. We all have a kind of general sense of it being important as a, a health policy, an education policy, a social policy, whatever. But actually affirming why these sports clubs are very important at a local community level and why, given all of the other draining resources that the state coffers have, at this moment we should siphon off a certain amount for sports clubs. Yeah, look, absolutely. People would see sport as being great for physical and emotional well-being, and that's absolutely correct. Uh, you know, in especially in rural areas, it, the local sports club is your focus point. It's possibly where, you know, due to closing down, you no know, pubs, houses, public houses, and so on, it's where your focal point is. And I think the important to understand is that sport exists in this country in many guises, and what we can't take for granted is that expectation that that will be the same way. Uh, as COVID-19 goes on. Um, sport has also a huge economic value. It accounts for 2.7 billion in annual consumer spending on the island of Ireland every year. Um, it employs 40,000 people in, 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 the, in the job sector. So it has a huge economic value as well. And a lot of time people don't see that. And it has an economic value, not just at national level, but local uh, level as well. And the one thing we're saying about the Resilience Fund is people will apply for funding from the Resilience Fund on, based on need. There have to be an evidence of need. Um, and I think that's really, really important for people to understand. And national governing bodies, for the most part, are not-for-profit organisations who exist to organise sport um, across the island of Ireland. And if 13,000 clubs that feed into our national sporting organisations are under pressure, then as a consequence of that, the national governing bodies will also be under pressure and sport will struggle to remain viable, um, not just at a national level, but really at a local level. Mary, how much do you see sport returning to its viability over the next two, three months, as we go through the phases of the government's roadmap. Do you see anything in that that gives you hope? Yeah, look, I mean, obviously, the likes of tennis and golf have a huge responsibility on them, and they'll take it really seriously, the protocols that they put in place for return to sport. So you have to be very careful um, with that. But, I mean, obviously, sport was one of the first sectors of the year to the government guidelines. There was a complete halt activity, um, and sport respects and obviously endorses um, the emergency health team's um, directions. But it's going to take time, and obviously, I'm a sports fan like, like all of you, and we'd like to see sport back, but we have to be sure and cognizant of the fact that people have lost their lives to this awful disease and we have to take our time um, and, and, and be sure that it is safe for all participants to go back to. And I think you all can't underestimate the psychological uh, work that needs to be done, especially for kids and for parents maybe, to ensure that they realise that it is safe for their child to go back to participating in sport and physical activity, whatever the sport was. How should that be managed? Uh, you've called for uh, the introduction of a task force as well. It, it, it feels like there certainly should be some kind of cross-industry body who's saying, look, this is what we've learned. This is best practice from around the world. This is the latest research. Because again, as was the, the case at the very start of the crisis, people are getting information. Um, children are no longer super spreaders. Actually, they're less likely to... Uh, to spread the disease and then all of a sudden there's the emergence of a, a new respiratory illness which seems to be specifically targeting children and then all of a sudden it's like oh no don't worry about that it's only been three cases like the information that's coming through 
depending on what your sources is, is either very positive or kind of a little bit still concerning. So how, how do clubs and the government and the Federation of Irish Sport and sponsors and broadcasters all come together to kind of say, well, look, what is our, what is our official nationally agreed pathway here? Yeah, I mean, obviously the Federation welcomed the Return to Sport X group that has been established. And I'm sure that expert group, when they're coming up with uh, their views on Return to Sport, you can't underestimate the cost that that implies for local clubs and organisations as well. To put in infrastructure, things like hand sanitizer, signage, also the training of volunteers, risk assessments at local level. And you're talking about local level sports, talking about volunteers, and that's a huge responsibility for them. You take that into, into, into thinking, but also then task force that we're looking for. We wanted to sit alongside the Resilience Fund. We want the Resilience Fund to come, and obviously because it's urgent, it's needed. And some of the national government bodies are really feeling the financial pressures at the moment. And the task force, we want innovative thinking. We want swift action. We want to learn from international best practice. Um, and I think you're right. We need, there needs to be that community that the existence for anyway across the whole sector to ensure that when sport does come back, that obviously people feel happy, safe, and, and secure that they're in, they can enjoy their sport in, in a safe manner as they did previously. Uh, who, whose job is it to set up that task force? Is it a government? I, I mean, is this, is, does this now need political support, A, to give you the money, and B, to set up a task force and give it some teeth? Yeah, look, obviously we need a, a government solution to this, and the Federation of Irish Sport um, have submitted um, documentation to uh, Ministers Griffin and Minister Ross um, on this, and, and we're waiting on a reply from the Department of Transport, Tourism and Sport. But um, I must say that we have worked quite closely with Sport Ireland, the Department, and Minister Griffin on this topic for a number of weeks now, and we've had a number um, of meetings. So the, they know the reality, and they're aware of the situation that's going on, and obviously the the tourism uh, working group was announced yesterday, but the most important thing for the sport right now is we need a resilience fund to assist sports to remain viable because it will cost the government an awful lot more money to restart sport um, post-COVID-19. We need to make sure the sport remains viable now. Mary, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned the, the tourism uh, sector ha had been looked after there over the last couple of days. It was certainly one of the talking points that we had during the general election, especially about how sport is governed on a political level after the general election. Is there the possibility of uh, sport being in a different department allied with different things that aren't transport and tourism? Does this opportunity now where there is no sport happening give you the chance to, to have a think and other power brokers in our sport to, to have a think about how sport is run politically and how we might proceed in the future that things are better for sport? I'm not saying that things are run badly whatsoever, but just to, to improve things on an overall level going forward. Yeah, the Federation of Irish Sport um, coming to general election, we obviously submitted our thoughts on sport in a manifesto uh, to all the, the, the parties going for election. And that's one thing we put in to look in uh, taking tra uh, tourism and sport away from the transport uh, department, simply because the department, it's a massive department. Obviously, transport is, is huge in this country. We wanted to have um, all ministerial positions for, for tourism and sport. And maybe the opportunity is there now to to redraw the lines with the new uh, government formations that we'd certainly, um, you know, endorse that, you know, tourism is a huge sector economically to Irish Ireland, but also if you look at sports tourism, it's worth at least 500 million annually uh, to Ireland, and that's without hosting any big uh, international sporting events such as international rugby matches, soccer matches, um, or, or golf tournaments. 
Mary, I did want to just bring up one last thing before we go, and that was obviously this year was supposed to be the end, the culmination of the, the campaign for uh, 20 by 20. Obviously, it was not supposed to be the end. Uh, it was supposed to be the start of something different, but the campaign was called uh, 20 by 20 and, and all those targets were put in for this year. Um, have you any sense yet of what's going to happen with the campaign? Do you make sure that it goes into 2021 now, given that it will essentially be 2021 before some sense of normality returns to the coverage of sport? Yeah, look, obviously, from a Federation of Irish Sport point of view and from a 2020 um, movement point of view, the commitment was to October of 2020, and that's the goal we're working towards. Obviously, the work of, of the campaign has been stimmied now uh, due to COVID-19, but we're, we're still working hard. There's an awful lot of work going on um, behind the scenes. And obviously, then we have the 20 by 20 movement still interacting and still motivating people to be physically active. Uh, during COVID-19 because that's what we wanted the campaign to be. We wanted to resonate not just with people who already participate in sport, but also people who might think about getting back into sport or actually participate in sport for the first time. So it's a kind of a campaign that's had real success and we've been blown away by the success it's had and, and we want to try and continue on to that, but obviously we're aiming for um, an October finish currently. All right, Mary, we'll leave it there. Thanks a million for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. It's Mary O'Connor there, the Chief Executive of the Federation of Irish Sport, uh, talking about the need for a resilience fund to help a lot of clubs who are in difficulty just see this period out so that they're still standing when we come out the other side. And um, I think that's definitely going to be a focus of a lot of conversations is what can we save and how much money do we have to be able to allocate to save different things. And every industry is obviously lobbying very hard at the moment to try and make a, a special case and an exceptional case. I think this is an opportunity for us all to reflect on just how important sports clubs are going to be in uh, getting people out, getting people active from a mental health perspective, from a wellness perspective, from uh, a fitness, from a health. Um, notwithstanding the fact that we all want to go and see games, if people can go back training, if people can go back and be socially distant, while at the same time being together, then you can see the benefits that that's going to have for our society uh, straight like straight away and right into the future as well. So if you've got any thoughts on that, 87 180 is the number uh, that you can get us on by WhatsApp or, of course, you can always tweet the show at Off The Ball. Now, um, coming next, we have uh, this here, yeah. So sorry about that. Uh, <clears throat> One more thing we did want to bring your way this morning is the story of Balnamore, Sean O'Heslin's GA club in Leitrim. There's a piece up around the club on offtheball.com, which you can read now. The club has 69 female members, which is more than a quarter of the club's total membership. And the ladies' side of things has only been in existence since 2003. They've moved up through the ranks of junior football into intermediate. And for 2020, they've qualified for senior. You can read all about the club and how they're growing the ladies' side of the operation on offtheball.com. Have a look at this. I joined the Shauna Heston Ladies in 2007, a relatively new club that was founded in 2003. Under 9, under 11 teams are made up of 60% from girl players as part of our club philosophy to make sure that those girls can progress into the senior levels. Jack Sports exclusive distribution partner to Under Armour Team Sports is excited to let Bellinamore Moore Shauna Heston's club know that your thousand euros worth of kit We'll be ready for you when you get back up training plan. We're looking at a long layoff here and maybe no championship 
this year. If the only option was one behind closed doors, which will be the only option if there's going to be one, are you in favour of that? You're happy to go out and play championship games away from a crowd just to get it done for the players, for the, I guess, the, 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 the simple pleasure of taking part and trying to win something? Or is it not worth it without the fans? I think it's very much. I, I'd find it very weird without it. I, I, if I'm the gun is put to my head, I'd say no. I don't think it would be the same without the fans. If it's, I don't think we should run a championship just for the sake of running a championship or for ticking a box. And we know we all wanted and we'd love a few matches. I think if there was a junior B championship played off in the morning and it was streamed live, it would be the most viewed going because we're just craving games. But I think uh, personally, I just I, I couldn't see. Um, you know, we've all played challenge matches behind closed doors, and there's just no atmosphere to it really, and you can hear everything that's going on. But I think that atmosphere draws it out a little bit more. I think as a player, I think that's what you want. You want to play in front of the big crowds. You want to play in front of the big stadiums. So that would definitely be weird. Um, but look, if it's for the sake of, if it, if it has to be, it has to be. There's no problem. I think once everybody gets the level playing field with that, I think that the one thing that you want is that if they if they if they announce what way it's going to roll, that everybody comes from the same base. Uh, in terms of, you know, it's a green light now to start doing collective training. Um, but yeah, look, if if I'm being asked black and white, I don't, I wouldn't really be in favour of that. I I just couldn't imagine it being anything like what Championship hurling is about. I'm sure the players won't mind if you end up winning the Lee McCarthy or a Leinster or a Munster Championship. You may not be too fussed. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> I, I, Eddie Brennan, they're obviously talking as the current Leash manager, but as a former Kilkenny legend as well. And uh, it's interesting that, you know, going to his head, he's saying no, but actually doesn't really think the players will mind if they end up winning it. They'll still consider it all. And I, sec- I suspect that... Um, I suspect that there won't be a gun to anybody's head first off, but that ultimately if we can play some games, if you think about the pathway that rugby have put out where there'll be games from August, if you if you think about what the League of Ireland are going to announce today, where we'd expect games probably even before August or around that time, that by November there will be a country, assuming everything goes well and there isn't a, a second surge, which is a huge assumption to make, certainly the way the patterns are evolving at the moment, um, that by November time, we'd all be like, maybe we could play some GAA. What do you think? Could we just have some games? Even if it's just in like Croker and Porky Creeve and, uh, and it's just for some tournament, let's have them. I think, I think definitely November even, I know that is the official GAA line that it's October at the very least. I think it's kind of like a, a pessimistic view. You, you can see why the GEA have said this, that they want to give themselves the best opportunity to actually be in a position to go forward from October or November time. And who knows what they might be able to do before that on a club level. But like, I certainly would be of the point of view that things that have been said in the papers in recent days and recent weeks, that it is harder to get things up and running safely at a grassroots level is definitely true. The inter-county game would be an easier one to get up and running safely because, as you say, you'd have Parky Cueve or Croke Park uh, available and you'd have far more resources available to these teams as well. I think once we start to see rugby happening in August and, as you mentioned, the League of Ireland, but even now when you see a Bundesliga weekend go off without any huge or seismic hitches and the Premier League next month, I think the Premier League is going to be key because... Bundesliga can only take you so far in terms of having a conversation about sport and, and feeling that sport is back. But next month, come June 19th, when you've got Liverpool and Manchester United fans around the country talking about sport again, it won't feel as taboo a subject. And it feels to me at times that the GEA have approached this in a way that is, God, we can't go there. We, we, can, we can't possibly 
suggest that anybody go out onto to a football pitch, which seemed very cautious. Definitely uh, a safe thing to do. And you can't criticize anybody for being safe in this current climate. But I just wonder if the potential risk can be minimized and the view of the GEA is that actually we can minimize this risk quite efficiently and we might actually be able to do something maybe even a little bit sooner than later on in the autumn because remember Horn ha- has said that we could move things forward as well like I'd, I'd be optimistic on that front of having behind closed doors games at this point before the end of the season especially in a month's time if the Premier League is up and running and uh, things haven't gotten any worse. I, I Sorry I had this on the desk earlier I meant to draw attention to it um, it's B.A. Barakas's birthday today Mr. T is 68. Well, a big uh, happy birthday to uh, Mr. T. 68? Yeah. 68? Is yeah. that all? Now you're making me doubt myself. God, that's uh, that's impressive. Like we are... Yeah, 68. Yeah, yeah. I suppose he is. Yeah, I suppose he is, in fairness. In fairness. Yeah. I, 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 don't, know, I don't know, for whatever reason, I thought he was a lot older. I don't know why I would think that, because he's clearly not. Well, Rocky, Rocky 3 was his breakout performance. It was, um, you know, yeah. pre the A-team, and then obviously the A-team comes next, and that, that was kind of it, really. Well, it's true. You see, I, I when we watched that back recently, I was like, well, this is peak Mr. T, but actually it's not. It's the start of a beautiful career for him, really. Yeah. Okay. Uh, sorry, I, I distracted you there from the uh, very salient points you were making about uh, the GEA and their return to action. But we'll come back to that again some other time because we've, we've plenty of time. It turns out we've months and months to talk about when or what the GEA might look like when it comes back. So uh, in the meantime, if you want to get involved, you can uh, WhatsApp the show 0879180180 is the number. Um, tomorrow, it's Wicklow's Mount Rushmore with uh, Adrian and Owen. Paul Howard and OTB's Tom Malone are putting their necks on the line. Darrow Breen is going to join us as well. Is this is this a good county? Is this straightforward? Is do they have anybody? Anybody? Bueller? I th- anybody? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've got a feeling that they might have used up all their legends in broadcasting and writing and comedy with uh, Darrow Breen, Tom Malone, and Paul Howard. It's as star-studded a cast as we've had for a selection committee. No offense, Kildare. But it's a star-studded cast as we've had for, I for see, a selection committee. I see Ronnie Delaney lived there for two or four years, so they're going to try and steal him. Obviously, Katie Taylor is like straight on. After that, is it like Kevin O'Brien? And is there anybody else? Is there anybody else? Eamon Darcy? Mick O'Dwyer. Mick, Mick O'Dwyer are going to make it onto like four different Mount Rushmore's by the time this thing is over. What? Katie Taylor, obviously, number one. Like they, As we said, there's only a few counties that have absolute bankers. She's The conversation has already been had. She is up there. We're picking three heads, really, between the, the rest of the contenders. Fanula McCormack, Gary O'Toole, Reggie Corrigan, Shane Byrne, Leo Cullen. Leo Cullen has a shout now. Like, yeah, it's putting together a very, very, very impressive coaching career. You'd imagine he'll be in with a, with a great shot of making it, actually, Leo Cullen. It's, it's quite impressive in terms of rugby options. In terms of outside of Dublin, Leinster counties, you'd have to have Wicklow up there. Kevin O'Brien. Ed Joyce, the cricketers. Both contenders have to be, have to be contenders. We'll see. Like, is there any good racing heads there that Tom Malone is going to shoehorn in? Put, put out, yeah. Too many uh, mountains. Uh, the, the grass isn't good. The horses don't like it. It's uh, bang on nine o'clock this morning. You've got plenty coming up for you in the next hour here on OTBAM. Keith Wood, Andrew Mertens, and Michael Checa join us for episode three of Keith Wood's State of the Union. That's next. OTB. AM. This is OTB Sports Radio. Off the ball. When I got to Liverpool, I thought, right, I've, I bought myself a nice Aston Martin. I pulled up on the lights alongside Roy Keane. 
of all people. And uh, I had the shades on. I think I was listening to some speed garage. My arm was out the window. Um, you know, I was having myself. Uh, and then Roy, Roy gave me that look that uh, he's given many a people in his in his time. And um, as he sped off into the distance, I was sitting in this car, looked at myself in the mirror and thought, I need to get rid of this. Off the ball. Weeknights from seven and weekends from one. This is OTB Sports Radio. OTB AM. With Aviva, Ireland's largest insurer, celebrating 10 years of iconic sporting moments at the Aviva Stadium. OTB's State of the Union with Keith Wood. All right, you're very welcome along to episode three of Keith Wood's State of the Union. We're looking at the Southern Hemisphere this week, and I'm delighted to say we've got Michael Checker and Andrew Mertens with us. Gentlemen, you're both very welcome from your respective lockdowns. Um, Keith, the, the, the Southern Hemisphere is uh, something that we really need to concentrate on for this week because we're very interested in the relationship between the Southern Hemisphere and the Northern Hemisphere, and particularly maybe some of the aspects of change that are coming in the Southern Hemisphere that maybe we should look at ourselves as well. Yeah, I do. look, I think some of the changes that have happened over the, the, the last two decades, some of them really worked, some of them haven't. And some of the tinkering that happens with really good competitions has ultimately impacted on them. And we've seen that, I think, in, the, in Super Rugby, when it was Super 10, Super 12, it was pretty phenomenal. Um, but suddenly it became this geographical uh, behemoth. It stretched everywhere. And there's an element of disconnect that happens within that. So... Uh, and for the boys' benefit, we've we've used this podcast just to try and have a little cursory glance over um, a, a proper reset for the game that COVID has given us. Because um, you know there was change; everybody was struggling, everybody was under pressure uh, for the last number of years. But there has never been a chance or an opportunity to stop and look and uh, take stock of where we are. Um, and we're looking at the game struggling and struggling very heavily. And in the last couple of weeks, even, um, the, the chance to try and get back to play has just caused more problems, more issues. Um, uh, the finances of all the, the countries, the clubs, um, the unions are all beginning to kind of struggle a little bit more. So I think everybody's nervous and we're trying to have a little look uh, globally, if we can, it's what, ha- what happened in Ireland, what happened in the UK and France and Europe, uh, how much that impacts on the Southern Hemisphere teams, but also how much of an impact we are having on drawing so many of the players from the Southern Hemisphere and whether that is being detrimental down there as well. So I think that's a, a, a snapshot of, of where our conversation is going. Uh, Michael, maybe we'll start with you and, and the situation in Australia. Um, week to week, it's hard to know who is actually actively in charge. Is there a guiding philosophy at the moment about where the future of Australian rugby is going? Uh, <clears throat> I don't think there is a guiding philosophy or direction around uh, you know, our, our end game, around uh, the two sides of the business, okay? So the business of business and then the business of sport. Uh, it's a little bit different, two bottom lines, you know, financial bottom line on one side, and emotional bottom line on the other because and they don't often and always run parallel because um, teams may invest a lot in their um, you know, uh, uh, efforts and may not get those rewards at the uh, in the competition side of things but I think we've um, 
our issue here has been about how we measure, I, I believe, obviously, and it's only my humble opinion, about how we measure success um, of the business. And I think that um, the success of the game traditionally was measured by participants, right? Now, that may not seem like a very business type of thing to do, but those same participants are your customers at the end of the day. And I think mean, now what we've done is we've, we've started to focus too much on revenue, TV deals, uh, uh, ticket sales, et cetera, which are extremely important, but they're much easier to do and achieve good outcomes there and consequence of good outcomes there when you have a strong participant base because those same um, participants, not all of them will end up in the elite level and they'll all become fervent spectators fervent fans or part-time fans according to the different levels of, of um, sport we have. And Super Rugby has been a consequence of that because we've got bigger and bigger and bigger because we wanted more TV money, more TV money, more TV money. The fundamentals of the game, of the business, have, like any business here, uh, aren't there because we don't have any assets, no stadia. Uh, we don't own any competitions, really. Uh, our local club competitions have even been disseminated amongst the different regional or political, uh, you know, state bodies or, or suburban bodies, etc. So the governing body has no assets. Now, players could be considered as an asset, but they're also a heavy cost as well. And the, with no transfer fees, players aren't really an asset. So we're running a business with no assets and we have been, we had, I know I'm talking a lot, but the reality is that we've had super rugby. It's been losing money for all the clubs hand over foot and we've maintained our presence in that, in that tournament. Um, that expansion of super rugby, has that led to some of this decline or has there been, has it been mismanaged? Uh, I think that's, the focus on the international game is a unique selling point for rugby. And I don't think that it should be ignored at all. In fact, I think that it's a huge sell compared to, for us, competing against league and AFL. The international part of our game is extremely valuable uh, at the top end, but you've also got to have a strong functioning um, next tier because not only is that your supporter base, but even for the development of players, this is not a business side of things. Yes, it's competition you play against all these other teams that you're going to play against eventually, but the idea of um, playing Leinster-Munster, which you have played in many times, will in front of a packed house with huge intensity, etc. Prepare and, and a sport that's followed prepares players better. Uh, going to a test match where you've only got a three-quarter full stadium can almost be, or a half-full stadium, can almost be a disadvantage to the home team because you're quite deflated when you go out there. And therefore, you know, participation and our connection to participation is key. It's not just, oh, yeah, grassroots. And I get that whole thing. But if we're authentic in the way we deliver the, the, the game as a whole to our participants, then they will be there to support us. They'll be there to buy tickets to buy merchandise, to wave the flag, to go on tour for travel, uh, all the things that de derive different revenue streams. And then 
with the international game, which will be our, our profit driver, we prioritise where we put that money into the non-profitable sides of the game, which will then grow um, our participation and volunteer network and all the people who love the game. But I think the expansion side of things is important but it needs to be and, and is, is excellent to have and does bring in a great revenue stream, but it has to be underpinned by a strong participation and uh, involvement rate by people in the game. Uh, just before we go on to Andrew, I just want to ask one last bit on pay-per-view TV or subscription TV. And part of the view in England was that cricket pretty much fell off um, the face of the earth for participation uh, once it went to Sky. Did that, did that happen with, with Rugby Union in Australia? Yeah, I think so. And, and I'll say that uh, with a maximum respect to Fox, I've been an unbelievably great supporter of the game over many years you know the the from right at the top news corp owners they've invested millions and millions of dollars into the game and we so you don't want to be disrespectful to that but if you look here at rugby league they've been able to find the balance between a broadcast deal that allows them to be pay tv and free to wear so that kids can have heroes I would say that during my tenure in, in the Wallabies, I would have had younger players coming through school, uh, 14s and 15s, I would ask to come and bring down the training that they wanted to try to entice to rugby. And they literally wouldn't know any of the players bar the ones who would come from rugby league. Curtis Rona, Israel Folau, uh, you know, guys who had been there and they'd seen on free-to-wear TV because I think here in Australia it could be, and I might be wrong here, I can't say exactly, 28 to 30% I think it's about 28% of the population have pay TV. So there's a whole range of people that aren't seeing uh, the product and that's for the development of the game as well. So some type of strong balance and you're going to find, I think, in the next few days that the NRL are going to announce a mega deal um, long-term with Fox and, um, and, uh, and also in a more shorter medium-term deal with Channel 9 that, which is a free-to-wear broadcast that allows them to give an excellent coverage and therefore um, have more and more people um, participating in one way or another, whether it's at games as junior rugby, uh, junior rugby league or, or on TV and, and therefore fans. So there is a, a way to do it. Um, I think we go for the, we'd probably go for the easy money sometimes, you know what I mean? And, and it's, I understand why often. But uh, they, these these decisions are always about risk assessment inside of the boardroom, and um, you've got to make sure that the calculations are very very clear when it comes to the decision you make because they're pivotal decisions inside any game. Andrew, what's the scenario like at the moment in New Zealand? <clears throat> Pardon me. Obviously, participation is never going to be an issue. It's it's such a, a part of the culture, but it seems as if the finances aren't quite as uh, rudely healthy as they should be, given the playing base that they have in New Zealand. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's a complicated issue. Um, part, part of the complication for rugby, I guess, is it's a global sport without really global numbers, um, not compared to soccer or, or to football, you know. So, you know, New Zealand's, every country's got different um, advantages and, and weaknesses. You know, New Zealand's advantage has got a great brand. 
um, in terms of proportion of the population, it's got the lion's share of, of resources of the of kids coming through and playing the sport. It's got the support. What it doesn't have is it doesn't have um, a big economy. You know, we, we're not a, a big country uh, in terms of, of our economy. We don't wield a lot of political power. Um, and uh, even with a really, really good brand as the All Blacks, we don't wield the power not that I think we should either, but we don't wield the power in world rugby. So our challenges are a little bit different. We've got good domestic strength in our competition, but we can't compete with you know, um, players getting offered big contracts overseas. So that's traditionally been our challenge, of course. So it's, it's a really complicated issue. Australia's different. Australia's got a... Um, you know, a much stronger overall economy where the rugby has got its share of that. Obviously, it doesn't, but it's got competing local sports, AFL and, and NRL, football now as well. So it's a really different environment over here. And part of the issue in Australia as well, where I'm living in Sydney, um, much as I keep connections, obviously, in New Zealand, is that it's, it's a class game to a large extent in Australia. So whereas everyone in New Zealand plays it, over here, it's much more seen as the private school sport. And as such, it's really hard for it to get a following outside of its, its player base, its traditional player base, which is the, the private schools in, in Sydney and, and Brisbane. You know, so as Czech said, giving people access to the sport on TV, you don't get a lot of casual watches uh, in Australia of rugby. You're, and, and such is the nature over here as well. It's quite fractious where you've got people who are really died in the wall club supporters, they tend not to be the ones who go and watch the Waratahs, for example. And the people who do go and watch the Waratahs locally here may not, uh, are probably unlikely to be the people who go and support their club fervently. So you've got a real kind of a, a divide in the support base here as well. And so, you know, the country's, a, it's pretty complicated. New Zealand's going to benefit, I think, ultimately from a revamped Super Rugby. I think Australia will too. I've said for quite a while now that I think the competition, while it's expanded, it hasn't expanded in a, in a, in a sort of a consistent or a logical way that's scalable. It's just added a couple of teams here and there, you know, went to 14, went to 15, then it went to 18, dropped back down because it was, that was crazy. It's a wonder they haven't tried the prime number yet for, for you, Woody. Prime number would be something like a 17 or a 13, <laughs> mate, you know, divisible only by one in itself. Thank you. Um, but it, it hasn't, it, it's still, the hindrance in Super Rugby is there are games in Argentina now, which is, you know, time zone is not great for New Zealand and Australia. Same with South Africa. Not many people are watching even their own teams play at three in the morning coming out of South Africa. So it's nothing against South Africa, but I think the competition would be much better, more localised into one time zone, expanding into Asia. That's where Australia can use, a, I guess, a bit more of an economic footprint into Asia. And New Zealand would benefit from that, I think it's been crazy somehow allowing Japan to slip out of the, the, the Sanzar competition. But if it means that Aussie and, and New Zealand and the islands and, and Asia get in together, then I think it could work well. And the logical place for South Africa, I think, to expand um, would be places like Dubai or, you know, go into the same time zone and hit Barcelona, put a team there, you know, that sort of thing. Um, when I said... I've said constantly for the last sort of five years, I think that the competition in Super Rugby needs to change and needs to wipe out those big divides in terms of the time zone. Um, South Africans jump up and down and say, oh, you hate South Africa. Well, no, I don't, other than the fact you beat me in 95 in the World Cup final, saying that I did more than my fair share for the Springboks that day anyway. But um, I don't hate South Africa at all, at all, but what I'm concerned about is the rugby product. And I, I think that's suffering at the moment through the, the structure of Super Rugby. And I think one of the... 
um, benefits of this, this COVID, like in a lot of industries and, and business as well, it has actually reset. Like Chick said, I think right at the start, it's given everyone, or maybe Woody, it's given everyone a, a reset point to reevaluate and say, okay, how do we go forward now in, a, in an efficient way and a really logical way and make the most of, 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 of what we have as a product? I think Chick uh, touched on a point uh, uh, earlier on about the fact that as unions, the international game is the driver of nearly all the finance. The vast bulk of the money that comes into the game and out of the game comes through the international game. Um, Super Rugby ended up being trans-hemisphere, you know, and uh, in terms of player welfare, in terms of trying to play on the high veld one week or Argentina two weeks later, I mean, the amount of flights that have to go in there, and especially with, with what's happening now with COVID in terms of, of how difficult flying is going to be, will part of that reset mean that New Zealand will end up having their own competition or would there be a trans-Tasman competition? From my um, point of view, I, I can't speak for Czech. I'd love to see a, a, a trans-Tasman competition in this time zone. I don't know about you in terms of particularly your experience with coaching the Waratahs, how you found those challenges traveling all around the world. Good for your airports. Hmm. Now, I think um, I don't think the um, all teams are ham- hampered the same way by the travel. So I think that's, that's the, I don't think that's a real issue. Um, but the economics, oh, this is where I fell out a fair bit with Australian rugby, you know, I mean, it would have been a few years ago when they were doing the last TV, uh, the next sort of arrangement of what Super Rugby was going to look like. I was adamant about changing towards Trans-Tasman and Japan as well because, number one, when, because we need to rebuild the supporter base, you, you've got to think that the Waratahs could play one game at home be away for five weeks, get a couple of games at home, then have a break in June, which is no longer there now. You're running an events company, basically, if you're one of these teams in the, in the management section of one of these teams that aren't in the high-performance area. So you've got eight one year, maybe seven in another, the way the competition's structured now, home games. Uh, the, the economics just don't match up. And then to keep the consistency of viewing, um, Games, if you go wake up in Ireland, you're watching Super Rugby all morning, then you're watching some rugby in South Africa in the afternoon, but then you're watching um, your own competition and the English and French all night, you've got non-stop rugby from the morning to the evening. Here, uh, you've got the odd game punctuated in amongst rugby league and AFL games, which have their own channel basically on, on the pay TV provider. And the ability to build some continuity of fandom and, um, uh, and following and support and sponsorship loyalty and, uh, and, and return on investment for sponsors as well, which is what you want to do, is it's nearly impossible. And you, to break even in a super rugby team, you have to have a home final, at least one, if not two. Right? That's based on the sort of Australian model. And the, logist, the, the, the logical situation is that only one's going to get a home final. That's only because the competition forces it to be there. So you've got four other teams previously and now three that are guaranteed to lose money. And that I, I don't understand how they can sustain that model. I just, I don't know how they've just, I've been able to understand when I asked those questions in the, the, the rooms why we're keeping that model. As much as it's great, it is a, it's a great competition. 
to play in, etc. But it's not sustainable, and so it's been proven before COVID nineteen situation turned out. It's it's clearly proven because players were losing players at the rate of knots. Um, the ability to keep our younger players out of the hands of um, uh, of NRL as well is very difficult because I think there's probably you know ten or nine top line players in NRL that are all coming out of rugby schools. Yes, some of them were sent there from league to be put there for scholarships and stuff like that. But still, you've got them there in your hands. You can drive them. But we, we've just played along because we've had the... Uh, and, and it's not easy to give up that, that nice lollipop, you know what I mean? Big, that big TV money. But now uh, it remains to be seen whether we'll be able to access those types of funds um, from the TV deal. and. Um, therefore, down here now, there's a lot of players on the move. Like, there's a lot of noise coming out of Europe about a lot of our players here who um, obviously got a lot of uncertainty and therefore trying to you know, get some certainty by, by um, looking elsewhere. Uh, what's the club game like underneath the provincial setup? Yeah, look, I, I, I think the club game is a... Is, I might be a little bit biased here because I come from that era, you know, too. So, uh, but I think that the club game is an, is is an essential part. It's the link between the professional game and the um, and the amateur game through the people who are crossing over through it because players will cross through there. It's the only place players will really cross through to come and cross over between the amateur and the professional game. There's such a huge supporter base. When I say supporter base, maybe not turning up for massive crowds or anything like that, but volunteers, families of players, you know, clubs who have got five and six grades turning up to play on the same day, three or four Colts teams, and we've paid zero respect to it. It's been handed off from team to team. I think they, from um, organisation to organisation to run, Rugby Australia is not even in charge of the Sydney or Brisbane competitions, for that matter. Um, and, and in fact, I'm pretty sure that we had to pay someone to cover it. And then eventually those rights got taken. I think they've only just had to buy those rights back this year. The club game is, I think, when I talk about success being participation, I think it's instrumental for the core values of the game. We make up all these, you know, plans with, oh, these are the values of rugby. The values of rugby in Australia are right there in club, in club land. Guys who are working each day, just like it happened. I'm not saying, and, and the, the opportunity that one of those guys is going to get picked out and be playing professional rugby and, and make the dream happen and his whole family's going to go there and it's going to be a great day, that, that's gone now. Where we, like I... It was a great opportunity this year, I feel, that they could have put aside the state teams and just put all the players back into their clubs and done a club, a modified club rugby version, um, Sydney, Brisbane, whoever else, and then play a sort of national finals at the end. It's going to be a bit of a, a write-off no matter what. It's not going to be super rugby in itself. It's just going to be content for content's sake um, to try and access some money from the from the broadcaster and also to prepare players for test rugby, which will hopefully take place later on in the year. But um, I feel like um, we, we need to look at the things 
we need to prioritise certain things that we know could be almost like lost leaders for us so that um, our stadia will be full, our team will be very strongly supported um, no matter where it goes uh, and plays in Australia. And, uh, and that it's almost like a, it's the connection point to our fan base. That, that, that community-based, <clears throat> pardon me, that community-based competition might have been a, a good way to give a rebirth to that. Uh, one thing that I'm, I'm interested in, who actually owns the Super Rugby franchises? Who's sitting and presiding over this loss-making team? Uh, so the rug in Australia, I don't know how it is in New Zealand, in Australia, the, the governance can be a little bit complex. So Rugby Australia is an entity that then is made up of members from the different states unions okay so in new south wales new south wales rugby union owned the license to the waratahs they could choose to privatize that if someone wanted to take that license on for a certain fee in fact it was licensed out to waratahs rugby for a fee which they then you know it was all the same people but they sort of divided that like professional game from community game and uh yeah, at the end of the day, the losses all come back to the Rugby Australia. All the money is coming. So the money comes from the different revenue streams. The out-and-out -out pay TV deal, which is linked um, into the collective bargaining agreement of players, is uh, funneled through Rugby Australia and an X amount goes to each province so that they can use for, to use for um, player payments up to a certain point and then certain international players will get topped up from the home from the union, from the national union. And then they'll also get a certain amount of money from Rugby Australia for development of the game in the state. Right. Um, and the, but when, when it all comes back to it, if I turn up with a $3 million loss, it's RA who have to bail me out. And that's why, even though it might be, Two million from this team and two million from that team and two million from another team. It ends up being six to eight million for Rugby Australia every year, in one way or another, no matter how you spin it. How does it work in New Zealand? Who owns those teams? Uh, well, I better be careful what I say because I'm I'm fairly ignorant of, <laughs> um, of the actual setup. I'm pretty sure it's a, a partially privatised model over there, where the New Zealand Union does have a um, an equity stake in the five super rugby teams. There might be one which is completely privately owned, but at the end of the day in New Zealand, um, it's always been the way that it's been very centralised. So the New Zealand Rugby Union does hold the cards. Um, the way the sport has developed in New Zealand with a small population, it's just made sense. It's, it's been compelling for it to be centralised. There haven't been, you know, there are regional, there are parochialisms in terms of on the field, but off the field, it's always been from the amateur era right through. In fact, the amateur era built that. It's about the game and it's about the national body and it's about the All Blacks, essentially. So everyone falls in behind that and that's always been the way. Contract situation is, I think, still that the New Zealand Rugby Union um, is has the main liability in terms of player contracts and then they can sign individual Super Rugby contracts to top that up. But it's still New Zealand Rugby Union holding the cards and, and it does work well for New Zealand. Um, you know, it's it's limiting, I guess, in some other ways, but uh, but it works for us in, in terms of the context that we're operating in a small population. But, I mean, I, I can't see rugby in Australia being able to flourish, and I don't think Rugby New Zealand is going to be able to, you know, develop as much as maybe we're 
developing nations without a strong world body, a strong world focus. And, you know, I think firstly, we've all got to recognise in the rugby world that the economies that do hold the cards there in world rugby are England and France. Uh, they, they've got the money, they have got the political power. So that's, we've, we've actually got to recognise that. But we, I think those two powers particularly have to think outside of their own interests. I mean, it, you know, the English Premiership stands alone, can stand alone. If there was no other contact, the English Premiership would go well. It's a good competition, good system with feeder clubs and the different levels of play, whether regionally or, or nationally. France is the same. I mean, they've got 30 fully professional teams throughout their top two divisions. You know, they could, they could operate in their own right. I think they need to take on the responsibility or, or have it told to them that if we really want to make this a world game, then we have to have a world structure. And that opportunity that World Rugby missed a couple of years back when it tried to talk to the Six Nations about maybe moving the tournament, they said no, and it all sort of fell through. But I think somewhere we've got to sit down and go, okay, what's best for the game? If the Six Nations is best played then, then, okay, Southern Hemisphere nations, you need to get in and play your internationals at the same time. So throughout the world, we've got, whether it's one or two or whatever windows, where international rugby is being played. And then the lower levels can flourish outside of that because internationals at the moment are dictating when super rugby gets played down here. That's dictating when any other provincial competitions get played and that in turn affects the club games and they don't get access yet. People don't see the Wallabies playing for Randwick anymore. They might this year if it gets started, of course, which would be nice, but um, they, they don't get to see that. And so I think when World Rugby can actually have the power with obviously got to have buy-in from England and France predominantly, they need to construct a world structure that is scalable. So if you say, okay, in, in this time frame where Australia and New Zealand are playing and Japan plays and the islands or whatever, that this is a structure that can be built out eventually over time. What do we want the game to look like in 15 to 20 years? Because at the moment, we're still just adding bits to it. I'm curious, Woody, from your perspective, how that, whether you think the Pro 14 could exist completely standalone if it wasn't for contact with England and France in terms of the European Cups and stuff like that. How, do, how does that go from a, a revenue generation perspective? Yeah, I think it, it makes it into, I think we're kind of circling around uh, a thing that we've circled around for a few weeks, actually. So I, I don't think the Pro 14 stands on its own at all. I, I, I don't think it has um, fully worked as a competition. And actually, what it tried to do was mirror what Super Rugby has done, which is to have South African teams and to have um, Italian teams, which you can understand because it's the Six Nations, but actually geographically, it just makes things a little bit awkward and um, they haven't had any success within the, within the competition. So I don't know that that fits fully well. Um, for me, the idea of World Rugby's uh, debate a couple of years ago about a global season I think we, we, we try and put everything that we already have pre-existing and we try and then work a season around it. And I think that's too awkward and too uncomfortable. We may well have too many competitions. So because of that, we have players playing too many. You have no um, downtime. You have no potential downtime. Um, you have to have larger squads. They're more expensive. You have longer levels of travel. Um, and uh, when in the Northern Hemisphere, particularly, Michael, they play an awful lot more. As you know, they play an awful lot more than they do in the Southern Hemisphere. And so that travel does exact a toll on, on players. Um, if the European competition became a sort of knockout competition that wasn't 
six or eight weekends or 10 weekends that are suddenly taken up that it is only for the teams that get to the end or if um, if Super Rugby was something similar on the back of national competitions or if you had a British and Irish League um, instead of the Premiership and the Pro 14 and you you know amalgamated some of those I think you free up another five or six weekends a year and I think that actually makes it more sustainable but it's trying to shoehorn different competitions um, uh, different um, different vested interests into it. And I don't know necessarily that World Rugby spent a huge amount of time talking to the Premiership and to the French. They tend to dictate to them. They don't take that very well, to be honest. So I, 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 like, I do think that there is a potential to be done there. But for me, it has to be that professional rugby is under one group in, uh, in England and under one group in France. If you have the Premiership fighting with the RFU all the time, you're going to get vested interest, and that needs to be combined somehow. And actually, if that happens, I also think it stops some of the player drain from some of the other countries from, from the Southern Hemisphere because more things are aligned, if that is the case. It isn't just whether the club wins, it is also whether it can get win. Michael, I'm interested in, in what you think of the arrival of CBC onto the scene and the money that they're pumping in. Like Andrew makes the point about these very strong leagues in England and France, but if it wasn't for the CBC money, most of the teams in the Premiership in England would technically have recorded a loss last year. I think only one of them would have ended up being able to stand alone as, at break-even or making a profit. So the league does require investment, and with the money coming in, you can see that the power dynamic between the league and the RFU is only going to continue to be contentious. Yes, um, <clears throat> the CBC investment into Formula One, I totally understood, you know, and it was a very successful operation for them in the end after I think they sold out to Liberty in the end. It, rugby, I, I'm gathering that their investment into, and I, I wouldn't have no idea, but I'm gathering their investment into the Premiership is a stepping stone towards investing into the international game where they can truly maximise the skill set that they bring to to the business of sport around the commercialisation, the, the maximising the commercialisation of the product. Um, in regards to teams... Uh, recording losses it's it's different in, in, and I've worked in both of these environments right so the, the privately owned um, outfit as opposed to the federation owned outfit are two totally different animals now I think in France they they have worked out in the way that um, at the end of the season they have a, a, a financial body that overlooks all the teams if team X records a 10 million dollar loss uh, on their books, then Team X's owner has to put that 10 million in before they are given the permission to play in that same league again the next season. They can be relegated financially at the end of any year if they don't make their books balance. Now, if a private owner is wanting to invest that type of money, then I say, go for it. Be, the more money you can have in the game from, from privateers, I don't see what the issue is at all. Um, but we try to play in this halfway house of uh, you know, well, we want to bring in private money, but we want to then put salary caps and we want, we want to regulate wealthy owners that are coming into the game. And I think that that, that just doesn't make sense to me. It's, it's, yes, we want investment, but, yeah, now you invest on our terms. And it usually is a control play of some sort by the, by the people who run the leagues so the owners don't end up 
you know, taking over, I suppose. But at the end of the day, the owners of clubs own should own the league because it's their their bodies on the line, you know, when it comes down to that. Now, loss-making in federation-owned businesses is different because federation-owned federation teams are genuine, generally, and if we, you know, I'm trying to think of them all now in my head, they're generally all tailored towards the success of the national team. So in Ireland, um, Irish rugby will tell Leinster, you can play these guys for these games. You can't play them for these. I don't know the ins and outs of it all now, but yeah. I'm sure Keith will know. You, you guys know a bit. And they're tailoring that. <clears throat> and at the other end of that, they're giving them more resources to bring in players. And they put them into a competition that can, that can sort of handle that. You know, they're, they're, they're in a competition on a regular basis that can handle that type of drain back and forward. So um, the assets of the union will generally decide how they manoeuvre these things. And most successful sporting teams are going to have some, in, for the balance sheet, I should say, they're going to have some type of significant asset profile. So owning of stadia, um, owning of other revenue streams uh, that may not even be related to rugby, you know what I mean? So there, there, there's a lot of there's a lot that you can do when you've got the arena and the facility around, you know, different revenue streams. So the the actual um, differences in you know the profit and loss end at the end of the year, I think. You can ride that out as long as there's a standard that needs to be met and say, well, you need to fill that hole every year before you can pick up and run again the next year. I think that's that's pretty standard fare, I'd say. Andrew, you seem pretty pessimistic about the future of Australian rugby. Um, well, no, no, I don't know if I am pessimistic. I just I don't think it probably could go any worse. Um, but I think it's it's largely because just the, the, the stakeholders of the sport are all on different pages and there are so many different pages. Um, and I think like with anything, coming together and finding some sort of a compromise in a positive sense rather than a negative, you know, rather than, um, you know, compromise being nothing good at all. Um, I think a compromise in world rugby as well as Australia, the Australian context is coming to the table thinking, I'm actually prepared to to concede a little bit. I'm actually prepared to think of what's better broadly that we might all benefit from the sport rather than just my little vested interest here. Um, you know, so when you when you sit down thinking about world rugby, what would we like to see? What's been good for rugby? As you said, internationals have been a huge part of that, and tours have been a big part of that. Now, I'm not saying I want to see a tour every year for every team, but when you look at the fervour that the Lions brings out in the host country as well as people coming across. I think there's still a significant role to play for tours. Now, whether that's when the Lions go to South Africa next year, that New Zealand and Australia, one tours the other. I mean, these days you can take two entirely different teams. You know, one team to play the Saturday games, one entirely different team touring. People aren't going to know the difference, but the All Blacks go up and play in Tamworth and down at Albury or Moree or I'm trying to think of a few other towns, Bathurst, Toowoomba. You know, I think there's a room for tour there, but we need to have a window for those opportunities to do that, northern and southern hemisphere as well. So we need to sit down and say, okay, firstly, we want to have tours. We want to have availability of international windows. Secondly, what happens under that? We need to have regional competitions. We can't afford to have a super rugby. I mean, you said before the geographical challenges, Woody, of, of going across to Italy. Now, you consider if you were playing the Pro 14, had to go and play in Chicago, 
and then you know come back home, play another game, and then go off and play in Singapore. So that's the Super Rugby challenges as well. So I think developing a structure worldwide that allows you to have conferences in the same time zone. Now, in the European and South African time zone at the moment, you, you, you might be able to get together six or seven conferences. In New Zealand, in the Asian time zone, you might only have one at the moment. You certainly only have one in the Americas. But I think that's the kind of structure and format that, that we sort of need. And then under that, looking at how we, how we foster the level below that as well. Um, so, I mean, it's easy for me to say. Um, just get a few people around the table and get them all willing to concede a little bit. But I think that's what we need to look at and go, where do we see rugby being in 15, 20 years? If we consider it a global sport, we need to put a World Cup in the United States. That's, that's the reality of it. Look how successful it was in, in Japan. Fantastic. We've got to get to the United States. But how do we structure this so we can actually scale the game within that framework? Uh, and yet, in the midst of all that, the two guys who were going for chairman of World Rugby both said that they wanted to make the game simpler and larger. You know, they wanted to bring it to absolutely everywhere. But that becomes very, very difficult when the, the key components, the key countries are suffering at this stage. Mate, I think um, we're, one thing I hear, like we're talking about a lot of different ideas, and et cetera, by nature and by demographic, people who are leading rugby are not entrepreneurial. They're conservative. They don't want to be accountable for, I took this risk and it, uh, you know, it didn't happen because, you know, that... the, the wrong, the, you know, the guys that used to pat him on the back may not pat him on the back the next time he goes into that room. You know what I mean? And I think we're not thinking entrepreneurially about the opportunities for the game. Um, a game can do anything. Our game is um, international. It's it's also local. You know, we are so lucky to have that opportunity, and it's about being entrepreneurial in the way we think, um, and uh, you know, the way we approach. Uh, even just the simplest of ideas, and I know Andrew's trying to be uh, trying to talk about a few times around um, putting the season, you know, the international windows all together to create more. It's 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 absolute logic, uh, but we seem to struggle with it. And if you asked anyone, they wouldn't be able to tell you why, because it's like turning around a, a, an ocean liner. You know what I mean? And, and make, make a decision to say, okay, we'll play the rugby championship in February and March while you're playing the Six Nations. And then we'll play in October and November. And then all that time in the middle, you can play. Like that for us here, I believe, is brilliant because what will happen is rugby will be played. You'll be playing the grand finals of rugby at the same time as you'll be playing the grand finals of AFL and rugby league, which is the big, you know, that September time in, in Australia is when everyone gets, you know, fired up for finals footy, you know, and you can have great competition. You can have strong club competition in different times as well. You can just, just that logic alone. And the lack of entrepreneurship has not even allowed us to get to that point where we can just put the, and, and, you know, I know it's difficult to change. I really do, especially for the North where, um, it's very successful, you know, financially successful. But I don't think the North really has to change a whole lot. I think that concept of us playing in February, March sort of internationals and then those internationals in October, November or whenever they are, I don't know, that you pick those windows and everyone plays at the same time. It's, it seems pretty simple. But we, we, we like 
to make it look like it's complicated. It's just a matter of saying, this is what we want to do because of X, Y, and Z outcomes. And you've got to sell. You get nothing unless you sell. You know what I mean? We're not, we've got no God-given right to be given money because we play rugby union. We've got to sell what we've got and say, this is why this game is hot. Check it out. These games are going to be unbelievable. They're going to play, do this and sell because that's what, that's what people who are hungry do. Here, you look at NRL. The guy came out, the chairman said, we're back May 28, like ages ago. And everyone told him, you, yeah, no. What are you talking about, blah, blah? They'll be kicking off next Thursday. All going well. And it just comes back to saying, I've got ambition. I'm selling my vision and I'm going to do it. And that's all you've got to do. I can understand why um, Northern Hemisphere people might say, well, why the hell do we have to play the season through the Southern Hemisphere winter, you know, play in June, July, August, that's our summer months and whatever. Um, That to me is not about Southern Hemisphere. It's just a meteorological reality that Southern Hemisphere, okay, yes, Dunedin gets a few cold nights. You've you've been down there. What are you? You've got to find, you know, you've got to be fairly creative to, to stay warm on a night like that down in Dunedin, but we don't get those really bleak, bitterly cold like Northern Europe or whatever in the winter. I think it is you take out the Christmas complication potentially if you're, if you're playing through that season. I don't know what the feedback has been like generally in Europe about those Rugby World Cup warm-up games because from the Southern Hemisphere's perspective, we look at Edinburgh in blazing sunshine and, and a great crowd and, and good footy. You know, the days of playing in the middle of winter so that, you know, the big Ford packs can roam around these muddy pitches. They're gone. All the pitches are beautiful, as, as you know now. I mean, I never got dirty for, for starters, but I certainly wouldn't these days playing on the pitch. So that, that argument's sort of taken out a little bit. And I think you can still have – that's why rules are important, to let the big guys still have their roles in the game. You don't want everybody sort of looking the same shape and, and running around on fast tracks just because of that. So you need to have a role for the big guys. But I think playing on, on good tracks makes a lot of sense when the Southern Hemisphere doesn't get quite as cold as, as the Northern Hemisphere. And, you know, if you're looking to expand the game and have, you know, the likes of Russia who have obviously played in a few World Cups, Scandinavia, I mean, their build is ideal for rugby, you would have thought. Um, you know, playing throughout the summer, I would have thought, brings more of those Northern Hemisphere nations into our sport. Uh, for for me, there was one of the issues that happened, the first game that was cancelled because of coronavirus, to try and find a window to put it back in, there was maybe one weekend in the whole year in 2020. That's how jam-packed the season is because they still thought there was going to be a summer tour and they also then thought that the guys need a few weeks off and then they get back into it. So you're pretty much talking going up to a World Cup uh, on the back of a Lions tour, a Northern Hemisphere player could play for 48 weeks of the year. That is not sustainable, irrespective of financials or anything else that are within it. It's a tough game. If you look at NFL, the regular season is maybe 16 games with a few more at the end of it. And I know that's a different game, but there are elements of that that are important. But I don't think you'll find any consensus by everybody, because I think we maybe have a couple of too many tournaments or those tournaments are too big because they have to justify the television monies or they have to justify having larger squads um, so the idea in many respects is we've gone so big because it's been a bit fragmented and I would agree with with you Michael the idea of having an entrepreneurial view into the game it isn't just to have an entrepreneurial view on one tiny part of it it has to look at the whole thing 
but we can't look at the whole thing if everybody keeps what they already have. Yeah. And I think um, it's, this is where the selling comes in. So immediately uh, I go, okay, well, you can ask the Europeans to play in the summer. Everyone goes on their holidays. The TV broadcaster does not want that. Um, doesn't, you know, probably doesn't think that that's the right place to be playing it, but, uh, to, be, to be playing it because of the ratings and advertising money, et cetera, et cetera. But that's where the sell comes in. The, the overall sell about what the game can give you as, as a whole, not just that more is more equals more. Because it's proven here that more does not equal more. More games, more teams, more does not bring you more success from a television um, rating point of view or from a crowd rating point of view. It's about how the quality of what you do. So if you're going to have 10 home games, you want them home away, home away, home away, home away. So you've got some continuity. Or, um, yes, in the t- if we play in this period, um, it, it may not be the perfect time, but then you're going to get this in that period, which is going to sell better for you. Or a global internet. And that's where selling comes in. And, and that's when you're not entrepreneurial, when you're more, uh, uh, how do I say it, uh, uh, institutional, like, uh, let's say rugby is at the administrative level, then that's what you get. We'll, we'll play more and we'll get more money. But eventually, quality drops. People don't know where to watch. Uh, what, what's this comp here? Who, who are these guys? What's... What's this? We get stuck between some form of development and competition and it's, it loses meaning and that's what people want to watch and be a part of is meaningful competitions. Andrew, could I just uh, sum up? You, you were saying a calendar season, so the 2021 season would start for all the franchises at the same time uh, around the world, the various leagues, whatever, whatever conference they're in would start in January and let's say finish in September and in the midst of that you'd have a six week break for an international window where the Six Nations will be played and the Rugby Championship will be played and there might be a tour at the end of that year or somewhere else along in, in between and the next season starts the following year. Is that like yeah, well, oversimplifying I mean, but that's... No, 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 absolutely. However it's carved up, I just think the sport needs a global season. For, for it to flourish at the developing nations, for it to flourish at the levels under, um, in every nation, under the, the, the professional competitions and, and whatnot, and for the ability to, to, to schedule um, what we like about rugby, to have, the, have tours having a place. Um, you know, it might be that we have to really work on a, you know, the Lions has developed now into an every four years, which it has been probably for, I guess 32, maybe 36 years, that it's every four years. It didn't used to be exactly every four years, did it? Um, in fact, they didn't even probably used to tour Australia. But anyway, that's evolved to that. And I think there's no reason why we can't put in a, you know, look, here's a, here's a 20 year structure here who's touring when, maybe 12 years, who, here's who, who's touring when. But I think that the parties need to come with a little bit of concession. Um, and from our perspective in New Zealand, look, we've always said the All Blacks need to play in New Zealand to be eligible for selection. And that's to counter, you know, the, the potential to lose them all and they all go and play, you know, where our people can't see them easily without getting up at 2 or 3 in the morning or getting home at 2 or 3 in the morning. Um, we've always said we'll only select them from in New Zealand. I think as the development of the game goes and we push into Asia, into big economies, even if we get a small slice of that, I think New Zealand says, well, okay, we're happy to accept selecting all blacks so long as they're playing in our time zone. 
And so they can take their IP into new franchises, whether it's in Kuala Lumpur or, or Tokyo or Singapore or Hong Kong or wherever. Um, and that's a way New Zealand can concede and say, look, this is for the, for the development of the global game. So I think everybody needs to come in saying, okay, we might all have to give a little bit here, but at least being prepared to listen to other people's perspectives, I, I don't think that happens a lot. And South Africa as part of the European bloc, essentially, where, you know, again, everybody can watch it here or in South Africa, it's no problems. Yeah, and you might devise a playoff system, potentially. I mean, you might end up with something like six 12-team competitions, conferences throughout the world. You know, if we can get 72, you know, if you only start with five 12-team competitions, but that has the potential to expand. So, I don't know. I mean, however it's, it's carved up, I just believe, firstly, that New Zealand and Australian teams um, underneath the, the international teams need to be playing in a time zone, uh, their own time zone. Um, I think to develop the game in the States, there needs to be a conference supported, well and truly supported over there. They've tried several times to get it off the ground. Looks like one has really caught on now. They've got sort of, I think, 14 kind of professional clubs in the United States. Um, so that needs to be supported as well. But I, I just go back to my fundamental point. The sport to grow needs to have a global season. Yeah, Keith, that all makes sense to kind of bring this back around. Like, it's the it's the old farts to uh, coin Will Carling's phrase in European rugby that might prevent the global season ultimately from happening. Yeah, I don't know that it has to be. Um, it, it, it's it's funny. I it, I know an awful lot of the old farts. Um, I would have said that a lot of them started in the amateur days. A lot of them were there for the right reason. Some of them are still there for the right reason. Um, I do think it was a, it's, a, it's a very slow moving ship. I think um, you called it a super liner or a super tanker earlier on, Michael. I do think there is, a, there is a possibility for change because the truth of it is there's no point if Ireland come out of uh, COVID, they're still going to struggle very heavily because there's a huge impact on, on finances. But if Ireland come out in a strong position in a couple of years time and none of the other countries do, that's of no value or benefit either. Um, Ireland are not a powerhouse. The powerhouses are France and England. Um, but they are the most fractious. So that's where the issue actually comes with it. Uh, and the one point we haven't actually talked about is if the game does have to shrink a little bit to be able to be viable and sustainable, is that going to have uh, an impact on player salaries? And will there have to be a reduction that's happening in across and there? Or is it just going to be smaller squads? So there are an awful lot of moving parts. But I, I, like I would say that there is, there is some movement um, you know, for the people that, that, I, that I consistently speak to, because like, we've been at this now for a little while, but uh, we can't have an argument all the time. I played the Premiership when the game, as soon as the game went professional, and every year there was a potential of a strike and a fight and an argument, and because there was a huge amount of vying, because we're still an incredibly small and young professional sport, was that just at home, Woody, before you went out to train first thing in the morning? That, that was absolutely for certain, yeah. And, uh, uh, well, you were there afterwards, actually. You were, I, th thankfully, we didn't cross over. We could have been dangerous together at Queen's. But, um, but there is the sense that, uh, that the game still isn't right. So the representative route where the unions own or have a controlling stake in the provinces is considered to be a very good model. And it is a good model. Um, uh, but it isn't necessarily, it isn't the only model and it doesn't have to be the right model. 
but all the models need to be able to work together. And at the moment, they're, I don't know, whether it's envy or protecting your own nest or whatever it is that, that's happening, but I don't think there's any level of consensus because nobody wants to give any ground on what they actually presently own. And uh, for the game to be, I would say, seriously sustainable, it can't have clubs paying huge salaries to extract players from other places. Um, it can for a couple, and it should always have a few that are in there because you want to have the best players playing wherever you can, but they can't be doing it at that's totally knocking a Southern Hemisphere team um, and uh, taking away whatever uh, assets that they have. So it's trying to get the balance within all that, um, and nobody's come up with any good solution for it. So any conversation that's happened with World Rugby has never found any level of consensus. They only got excited when they saw the size of the, the economic pie, whereas we're saying we actually want the game to be a fully sustainable game so we can have meaningful rivalries and uh, you know things that you actually want people to get up and watch. You, know, you want people to go and see, and you want to see the community game be heavily supported because we may get the professional game right, but unless the structures are put in to make certain that it's going to be right in 20 years' time because of the kids who are watching it, well, then that would be a, that would be a, false, a false gift for us, I think. 100%. Lads, you've been great with your time. Andrew Martins, Michael Checker, thanks a million for joining us on episode three of Keith Woods' State of the Union. We've really enjoyed it. I hope you guys did as well. OTB's State of the Union with Keith Wood. OTB AM. With Aviva, Ireland's largest insurer, celebrating 10 years of iconic sporting moments at the Aviva Stadium. That was an OTB Podcast Network presentation.